All right, guys, welcome back to the Hunt Back Country podcast. We've made it to the final episode of Elk Week. In this episode, part five of five, it's rapid fire. It's anything goes. We took all the questions that you guys sent that didn't fall into the categories of these previous four episodes and just throw them at the guys. So Dan and Corey and Paul and Trent, same guys again. We just give them rapid fire questions. Some of these guys get the same questions as others. There's one-off questions in here. It's anything goes. Steve, I didn't prep you for this, but I'm also going to give you some rapid fire. <laughs> um, I think I asked this one to everybody just because I was curious. And I'm curious to hear your answer because I don't know if you care that much. But if you had to pick one week a year to hunt elk, to hunt elk every year for the rest of your life, what week would you pick? Is yeah, it's a funny. There's two different weeks, right? Uh, if I'm my main priority was to kill an elk, it's the I'd say the 10th through the 17th. Uh, bulls are starting to bugle. They're not quite herded up yet. They're at their most vulnerable. Um, don't care about the moon phase. Used to uh, used to think that was like the holy grail. Don't hunt during a full moon. Uh, now. All I know is I just adjust my hunting times, right? Just make sure you're up and moving from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. because that's when the elk are going to be out and active and you can get into some awesome bugling action at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, so don't worry about the full moon. The The opposite side of this is if it's purely for fun, if if I had a friend you know, that was coming out and I wanted them to experience an awesome elk hunt with bugling, rutting, crazy action – you go the very last week of September. Like <laughs> in my experience here in Idaho, that's when the bulls are most vocal and talking, but they're herded up. You know, they're just a lot harder to kill. So killing September 10th through the 17th, pure fun. Like have someone come like I've wanted to take my nieces out. They're they're 17 and 18 years old and let them experience a bow hunt or even my wife, you know. Um, and that would be the time I'd take them out because it's a freaking blast to hunt that time of year. I love how uh, I asked this question and pretty much everybody can't give an answer, yeah. <laughs> like an yeah. answer, right? Like, cause guys get all excited. They're like, all right, pick one week. And they're like, well, I do this, if that, and you know, yeah. basically everybody who wants to hunt elk just wants to do as much as possible. So why would you limit yourself? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, all right. So let's do this one and I'm going to give you a caveat up front, Steve, you can't talk about work or family. But what has changed in recent years that great, that greatly impacts how you hunt now? I can't talk about work or family? No, because I know that's, that's what you'd say otherwise. You'd right. say, I have yeah. less time. And blah, blah, blah. But I'm more talking like, is there any trends in hunting for you in Idaho? Is it wolves? Is there something with like equipment? Like, yeah, not work or hunting. Anything else that's changed how you hunt in recent years that impacts, yeah, how you hunt now? I, I, it's almost getting to a point where it's cheating, but having the aerial imagery, you know, being able to cache Google image phones or images on your phone, having topography. I mean, man, that's, um, that's had a significant impact on, on me. And I, I'm sure everybody else of, um, I use it a lot. And at some point, like it, it's getting so good. It's, it's getting, you know, it could be cheating. <laughs> um, where yeah the quality of the image is so good so like yeah i mean i definitely elk hunting right i'm standing in a spot and i pull up the map and and i look and if it's new country especially or even country i'm familiar with but don't like 
really have dialed in. If I'm like setting up, I'll, I'll get on that map and go, okay, I'm, I'm a 150 yards away from the clearing that I want to be. I'm going to set up right here where in the past, you, you know, you may be like, I think I'm kind of close, but you, you don't really know. So it just really helps with that. Or even if you bet a buck, you can, you know, basically look on the map and go, okay, yeah, he's right there underneath that tree. And then when you go do your stock and you come around, you can pull that back up. And I said, it's getting to the point where um, there, it's just too good. So that's um, that'd be one technology thing I think that's that's definitely changing and, and, and just getting a lot better. You're not just stuck with a old quad sheet, you know, USGS quad sheet map that's pretty rough. So yeah. um, as far as like big picture, you know, I think the beauty of it is not much has changed. I think you could throw me back – 15 years ago and i don't think you know all that's changed it's kind of kind of nice it's one thing i love about about what we do so yeah cool yeah so i feel like i have to i'm looking at my list of rapid fire questions and i feel like we've either talked a lot about some of these or i have to give caveats because i know what your default answer (laughs) is going to (laughs) be um Okay, so what's a critical piece of gear that gets overlooked for backcountry hunting? So we've talked numerous times about critical pieces of gear being, you know, boots and pack, and clearly you could talk about big stuff like weapon, but what's something that just gets flat out overlooked? I don't know why I thought of this, and I don't know if it's necessarily overlooked, but socks um, and matching socks to your shoes. Like I have different thickness of darn tough socks, and I hike enough that I know which ones to wear with what shoes that I'm wearing that day. Um, so you can definitely tailor, I mean, obviously it makes a lot of sense, right? You can tailor the fit of your shoe with how thick your, your sock is. So if it's a little loose, I wear a thicker sock. Some ones are a little tight and I wear a thinner sock. So, um, that's a random one, but yeah, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Um, definitely you can, you can do that. So, cool. um, anything else? I guess you just asked for one. There you go. Yeah, That's good. I like yeah. it. Um, so let's wrap up with this one before we dive into hearing from the guys on the round table. I would imagine that many, many guys here in this are getting ready to take off on a hunt. Maybe they're in the truck on the way to elk camp, something like that. For these guys, like wrap it up with this. How do you stay motivated during a long season, a long hunt? Maybe it's a multi-day hunt. Things aren't going their way. Like what just, what's some like last minute encouragement and advice for them to stay motivated when things aren't going their way? Just sit back, like take a look around, breathe it in, and appreciate how freaking stinking lucky you are to be there at that moment. Done. I love it. You don't even need to elaborate. (laughs) I I mean, I I, you get guilty, and and I guess you don't want me to elaborate, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) go ahead. It's yeah. I mean, it's so easy to oh the elk hunting sucks and it's slow and it's hot and be a whiny little biatch, right? But Dude, we are so stinking fortunate. And I mean, your your family's at home, they're fed and taken care of, and they got a roof over their house, and you're out in the elk woods just, you know, enjoying life. And, and you got to step back and appreciate, like, this is a passion of yours. You think all year about it. Don't get negative. Just keep a positive attitude. And and just, we are so stinking lucky and, um, to be out there doing what we love. And man, yeah, just soak it all in. Yeah. Cool. I want to say we should just end the episode there and that'd be the final thought for guys, but we have a, a whole bunch of rapid fire coming from uh, from Dan and Corey and Paul and Trent. So let's kick things off with Dan Staten.
Dan, rapid fire. This is a, a perfect question to, yeah, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. So knowing you, you're all about hard work, physically, mentally, everything, and you're all about studying and knowing elk. So we had a great question for you. What kills more bulls, grit and determination or elk knowledge? I don't know about more, but what I rely on more than anything is grit and determination. Okay. So it's just working. I mean, elk knowledge is awesome. It really is. And it, and you continue to grow that. But that's from just reps in the field. Uh, but you can have all the knowledge in the world, but you, you can be tired. You can be a wimp. You can just be soft. If you combine the two, it's a deadly combination. But if I had to choose one or the other, just have some grit and determination, and eventually you're going to get your opportunity. Got it. If you had to pick one week a year to hunt elk every year for the rest of your life, you can only hunt elk that year forever. What year would that, or what week of the year would that be? That's a good question. Um, I like all phases. I really do. I've killed elk in all phases of September or the rut, whatever you want to call it. But I think the best bang for your buck as far as just hearing bugles is the 15th through the 22nd. Okay. You've hunted quite a few states. Um, I'm sure you've run into this. How do you gauge how much hunting pressure is too much? You moved an area, you're seeing either other hunters, you're seeing signs of other hunters, etc., how much pressure is too much, and how do you adapt to hunting an area when other hunters are present? Washington State, 2016, pulled up to a trailhead with 23 trucks and trailers. It was seven or eight miles to a main to from the trailhead to the main trail. That uh, it's, it was hilarious to me. I I, I almost turned around. I'm glad I didn't. I hiked in, I went six or seven miles, and I saw wall tent after wall tent, and I was like, wow, all the guys are here. So I jammed over another four or five miles to a lake, and there was more wall tents, and I was like, okay, these are where our density of hunters are. And then I backtracked towards the trailhead, and I made it about half the distance from the trailhead to both those little obvious areas and I hunted and I got into elk immediately and I ended up calling in two different bulls didn't kill them but I got within probably 60 70 yards of two different bulls with cows and that was only on a two or three day hunt in Washington state and that's when I learned I was like when there's this many trucks at the trailhead you have to think like an elk and not like a hunter hunters are going to go deeper than ever cuz they can whether they got llamas courses where they got just an exo you know on their back with all their gear for five or seven days then you have to think outside the box and go less less distance nastier country and that's where the elk were and so everybody rode past these elk and that's where they were and i think that happens a lot more now because people are in better shape people have seen what elk hunting is like on youtube and on videos, and they're like, I want to experience that. And I am pumped about that. But there's just more hunters in the woods than I've ever seen before. So you have to go or think like an elk and find these areas that are just overlooked or 
nastier country. And it's not necessarily go further. I would say go to harder places to get more inconvenience, more elk. And that's kind of, so no, I'm not discouraged when I see a lot of vehicles at the trailhead. Um, and plus, like I said, wait for those three days to go by. Everyone's going to kill it those first three days. They're fresh, they're energetic, and they're full of like gumption and go ahead. But they're still human and they didn't train as hard as you did. And they're not, you know, they're not on your level. And so biology will happen and fatigue will set in. And after those three days, then you can start inching your way closer to where they were hunting and possibly enjoy the success that they could have had if they'd showed up in shape with grit and determination. Got it. You're known for getting ready for season in a serious way. So like you're super fit, ton of shooting, ton of reps, but what is a key piece of your preparation that actually gets overlooked? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say two things. One, we're going to talk about the most, the least sexiest topic is just nutrition in the sense that I, I love to eat to where the fuel is for performance. The fuel going in is making me feel good and at my best. And the other piece would be talking to other hunters who have been in these areas and networking and picking their brains on what they've experienced. I think that's really helpful. But none of that really matters when you're preparing for a hunt. If you're not dialed at home, and when you hunt as much as I do, there's going to be tension between me and my wife. And it's really important for me to have my family stuff, my business stuff dialed before I step out the door so I can hunt my best. So the most overlooked of them all is that. Take care of your business, your family first at home. Have all your ducks in a row. Communicate ahead of time with your wife of all your intentions and plans. If you're thinking about it, Tell her because she has no idea what you're thinking, even though it's very simple. Like me, I'm very simple. I'm thinking about elk hunting and how can I do it as much as possible. But it's not always comfortable to be like, hey, hey, Alicia, I am going to go hunt Wyoming and it's an open-ended hunt. I'm going to be there until I kill a bull. And then I'm going to get really greedy if I can. Whatever time I have left, I'm going to jam over to Idaho and try to kill a bull. And if I kill another bull in Idaho, I'm probably going to buy another elk tag and try to kill another bull in Idaho. And then when I get home, I'm going to be home for a few days, but then I'm going to really try to go get that Washington elk during rifle season with a bow or whatever. You know, she's going to be like four elk and you're going to be like, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And so it's hard, but the reason why I share such personal stuff about me is I want people to know, Hey man, I'm just like you. And it's not all hunky dory. Like Hunting, it can be hard on your relationship. It can be hard on your business. So please take a step back and have everything dialed at home. That's part of that, that's the most overlooked, most important part of my preparation is making sure that I can hunt my hardest, knowing that everything is taken care of at home. Shot opportunity, nerves are firing off. Is there something specific you do to control that? Or do you feel like just with experience, with more encounters that you're able to overcome those nerves a bit better. How does that look for you? Yeah. So that will, I think that comes with a lot of reps of being in tight on elk with shot opportunities. 
Um, but I'm always nervous. I always have a high heart rate. Um, I try to not punch the trigger on any animal, but I would say if we're being honest, I bet 75% of the time we're punching a trigger, uh, archery wise, we're punching that trigger when it's a hunting situation. So what I do to combat that or mitigate that is I try to shoot, truly shoot back tension, springs, thumb barrels, hinges. Um, even the way I shoot my single hook is like all surprise releases. And so, because I think if you're shooting 12 months out of the year, all those shots should be surprise, you know, subconscious shots. But a lot of times in the actual moment, there's going to be a little bit of a conscious where the bull stops in that window and you're like, that arrow's got to go now. And a lot of times guys will punch. But I think if you've practiced enough a true good surprise release that even if you do punch, it'll be a rendition of a punch that will have some follow through. We'll have a good pull. Um, and then there's times where you'll just get a true surprise release. And hopefully the majority of the time, I would say majority of the time, it's almost like an out of body experience where if you ask me, well, what just happened there? You'd be like, I don't even know. It all just seemed to just be on autopilot and autopilot is not always a good thing, friends. So be in the moment, really focusing on where you want to shoot that elk or animal, and then just focus in on that specific spot. Don't look at the rack. Don't look at anything else but where you want that arrow to aim. And once you go through your shot sequence and you and you get that all, you know, you have to literally have a conversation with yourself while you're shooting, walking through the things that you have already done at home. For me, it's really important that I have the grip in my bow, like I'm gripping my bow the way that I always do and that the way I pull my bow back is that it's a very specific way where my elbow is in a specific angle while I draw, I anchor, I level, and then I pick the spot. The pin is blurry, but the elk hide, the tuft of hair is in focus and I am focused on that and I am pulling, pulling, pulling and I'm talking to myself as loud as possible and to, that's when everything goes right. doesn't always work like that. But if you haven't practiced that or figured out your steps or the things to coach you, man, you're, you're in a bad spot in a worse way. So to expand on this, when I'm working out and I'm getting tired and I want to stop or to take a rest, I'll step outside of my body and like pretend I'm my own coach and I'm coaching myself. So instead of focusing on how bad these squats feel right now, I'll be like, all right, Dan, just make sure you keep your knees out. Make sure your abs are tight. All right, make sure you're breathing out every rep. Like I'm trying to almost distract myself from the pain of squatting by going through my coaching cues. I'm trying to distract myself on target panic or rushing the shot by talking to myself, coaching myself while I make the shot. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's wrap with this. A few tips on guys who have to or want to hunt solo for elk. You've done quite a bit of it. So just... Like, what's the main, like, alarms, flags, things guys need to think through if they're going solo? I think everybody who hunts solo should have an in-reach. I think they should be able to speed dial whoever, SOS, send out a text if something goes wrong. I think they really need to dial in their first aid kit, have some sort of clotting mechanism or tourniquet, um, a way to stop bleeding. Obviously, just safety first. 
I can't stress it enough. Hunting solo has some risk, but it's got a lot of reward. So just mitigate all the risk by trying to have a legitimate way of communicating with the outside world, whatever it may be, and then being able to take care of yourself if something were to go wrong. Those are the most important parts as far as the actual hunting. I feel like it's the best. You're going to make decisions really fast. You're never going to like have these little powwow sessions on the mountain as to let's go this way, let's zig, let's zag. You're just going to go and you're going to lean on your gut. And I love that opportunity. I think that's going to work out really well for you. Corey, when you say you move into a new state, um, new area, how much hunting pressure is too much pressure? So we talked, you know, in, in the first episode about locating elk and how you can adapt based off of pressure. But do you ever make the call of like, man, there's just there's too much pressure here, be it hunters, be it sign from predators, what have you, we need to go to plan B? Or when do you just make the call to, yeah, there's some people in this area, but I think if we go off in this direction, we'll find some security. So again, how much hunting pressure is too much? When do you make that call? Man, any hunting pressure is too much for me, but <laughs> sometimes you just have to deal with it. I think uh, for a long time I, I got stuck in a rut and whether it was not finding elk, whether it was because we bivy hunted into an area and that was just the area that we were hunting now, uh, whatever it was, I found myself a lot of times waiting for something to happen. And I think in the last 10 years, I've really evolved into becoming a lot more mobile and we do a lot of hunting from a base camp and we'll hike 12 to 15 miles a day going back into some of these areas that are a lot more remote with the plan to come right back out and go six miles down the road in the truck and hit another area the next day so I really I mean I have if I'm hunting for eight days I have eight spots to hunt and I'll bounce from spot to spot to spot on a daily basis if I need to get away from hunting pressure, if I'm having troubles finding an elk that will talk, if we're hearing wolves howl or we're seeing really fresh wolf tracks, we'll just pack up, we'll head out, and we'll hunt a completely different area that evening. So uh, whether it's hunting pressure from other people, whether it's wolf pressure, whether it's just quiet elk or no elk, uh, I've learned to move quickly and not waste time in those areas. And I'll I'll cover a lot of different areas in a in an eight day period until we find that pocket where we where we find that perfect situation where there's vocal elk where there's elk that are you know talking freely and and where we are getting away from people and it seems like when you get away from the wolves and you get away from the people you find the elk that are a little bit more vocal so I, I guess I would say don't spend a whole lot of time or don't waste a lot of time if you aren't finding the situations that you're wanting to find. Got it. If you had to pick one week a year to hunt elk every year for the rest of your life, what week would you pick? <laughs> oh, so many variables there. No, you just can only pick one. I know. So <laughs> I think uh, if we were just going strictly off of the calendar and we had to pick a, you know, a numbered range of dates, I would probably say the 7th to the 15th or the you know 8th to the 16th, somewhere right in that frame, because that sets me up uh, hopefully a little bit after, you know, weather is, is cooling down typically every day uh, during that time frame. The days are getting shorter, uh, so the chances of getting out of the really hot preseason weather is, is good there. 
the fall equinox, the the peak of the rut, the trigger for the peak of the rut is hitting sometime, you know, September 20th to 22nd. So I'm hunting that period leading up to that. So I'm able to target more mature bulls that maybe aren't herded up yet, but are aggressive and uh, maybe more responsive to coming into calls, less vocal, but more responsive to calls. Uh, and I think most people hunt the third and the fourth week of season. So I'm, I'm getting in there before the pressure has really gotten thick. So if I had to just go off of a calendar and say for the rest of my life, I'm going to hunt, it would probably be like that eighth through 17th time frame somewhere in there. Hmm. I, I like how you took it from the eighth to the 17th and got in a couple extra days in that week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was in my mind going, you know, I always like to, try just to keep stretching that range, but <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe, maybe the, the ninth through the fifteenth, or the eighth through the sixteenth, or the seventh through the seventeenth, somewhere <laughs> right in there. <laughs> somewhere between the first of the month and the end of the month, you know, just kind of get after it a bit. <laughs> I just wish the elk rut lasted like three months, and uh, you know, I, I wish it did, but at the same time, I'm glad it doesn't because I think we'd all be probably broke and divorced for chasing bugles <laughs> for three months straight. <laughs> so, speaking of it lasting months. Um, we had quite a few questions on just hunting later in the season, hunting into October and not that, you know, a flip switch October one, then the rut's over by any means, but let's, let's call it like mid October, mid to late October. How do you guys adapt? We talk a lot about September archery hunts, but for the guys who have that mid to late October hunt, what are some of the top of the mind things that they should look at? Whether it's locating, whether it's calling, help those guys. Yeah, call, calling really becomes less effective as the rut dies down. So, you know, you have the peak rut that we'll just say for simplicity runs from September 20th through October 5th. And after that, elk will still be vocalizing. Uh, there will still be bulls with cows, uh, but calling gets less effective. And I think there's a lot of factors there. You've got, you know, the elk have been pressured by hunters for the last five or six weeks. Uh, they're starting to hear rifle shots because usually rifle season's open in that October 10th, October 15th time frame. And so a bugle associated with a, with a rifle shot, elk get wise to that. Uh, so they, they go into, uh, they're looking for security now more than probably anything else. And so you've got to get into those areas that are more remote, into those pockets where nobody else is going to go, where the elk are going to escape pressure. You've got to now find those areas. Uh, you can still hear bugles. You know, my son shot a bull that we actually called in with aggressive calling on October 28th last year in, you know, over-the-counter public land area. Uh, so they still will bugle. You get that second rut that hits, you know, 25 to 30 days after the first rut hit which puts you into that October 20th to October 30th time frame. So a cow can come back into estrus. I wouldn't completely discount calling, uh, but I think at that point you're probably more of a rifle hunter and you're using calls to locate elk and then just get in and, and find them on an open hillside where you can get a shot more so than setting up and, and calling them in. So calls are effective, but you're going to have to find those pockets where pressure is going to be decreased and, you know, even in, in heavily hunted, heavily pressured areas, if the elk are still there, calling's probably not going to be much of a, of a tactic at all. So it's going to be figuring out where they're feeding and where they're going to bed and then intercepting them there, uh, being in those areas well before daylight. So that as soon as it gets daylight, those elk are on the move for the first 10 minutes and then activity dies down pretty quickly. So being 
in a position to take advantage of that at daylight is is going to be probably the key to that. Yeah. Um, not specifically to October, but you mentioning that early um, early activity there for your hunting in general, and we can hop back to September archery if needed. For you personally, when have you had the most success? Morning, midday, <laughs> evening? Uh, you, you definitely hear more bugles in September at daylight and at last light. Uh, but again, if we go back to the, the episode we did on you know closing the distance and we talked about what elk are doing and understanding elk behavior throughout the day, uh, they're on the move during those times. So it's more difficult to keep up with them to be able to get in and, and get kind of a static setup. Once they get to their bedding area, you know, that 9, 30, 10 o'clock in the morning time frame, they're static from there until 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And they'll get up and they'll feed around. They'll go to water. They'll go wallow. But it's usually going to be really close to that bedding area. So they aren't on that dynamic transitional move. And so, honestly, my favorite time to hunt them is, I would say, 11 o'clock in the morning till 2 in the afternoon because they aren't moving, because they're in a bedding area where they are territorial and protective and where those cows are, are static, the bull is much more protective of the cows and and more likely to get up and run a bull off that's coming in and putting pressure on him and getting aggressive in his bedding area. So, you know, the bulls don't bugle and run near as much from their bedding area as they do when they're on the move in the morning and the evening. So I love the mornings because they're vocal. We can locate the elk in the mornings, uh, but typically if we aren't able to, to get right in close and call them in while they're on the move, I'm just paralleling them until they get to that bedding area, letting them settle down, and then moving in and setting up and calling them from there. What kills more bulls, grit and determination or elk knowledge? Gosh, that's the combination of the two kills more elk, I think. Having knowledge and combining it with hard work, thats uh, I think that's the recipe to killing elk. And I don't think you could, you know, the the guy that just grinds it out day after day, but doesn't have a clue what he's doing probably isn't going to kill a lot of elk and somebody that, you know, sits at the truck and doesn't get more than 400 yards from the truck and isn't willing to work, but understands elk probably isn't going to kill a lot of elk either. Um, If I had to pick one, I would say elk knowledge, understanding elk. I've hunted with a lot of people that kill elk year in and year out that aren't in good shape, that aren't good callers, that lack in a lot of areas, but because they understand elk are able to get it done. Uh, But I've also, you know, seen people that come onto the scene that have never hunted elk before that just absolutely get after it and don't give up that also create success. But I think the consistent success comes from the combination of putting those two together of understanding elk, learning as much about elk and elk hunting and everything about the country you're hunting and, and that, and then coupling that with a, with a willingness to just go the extra mile and push and push and push. Yeah. Wrap up with this. What is a key oh, piece? I know that's no, no, it's true. There. <laughs> yeah, it's a perfect it's, answer. In one way, it's an unfair question because I think you do need both, but yeah, I think, I think it's important to be aware of where you're weak so you can focus on that. Like, I know I'm willing to work hard, but I know I don't know enough about elk. Well, then clearly you need to focus on learning more about elk, right? So I think it's the question is improving your weakness in one of those two areas would be helpful. Yeah. And really, when you look at success rates at 10%, I mean, I I correlate that directly to only 10% of the population is willing to put in work, you know, and I think it comes down to business, relationships, anything. There's just 
there's only a certain percent of the population that is willing to work hard enough to achieve something that's hard. And I think that that's the, the main reason why success rates are 10 or 12%. That correlates perfectly with that percentage of the population that, you know, everybody has desires. Everybody out there wants something, but only about 10% of the, the population has the ambition to go out and actually achieve that. And so, you know, us sharing all this information probably isn't going to change the success rates. What it's going to do is empower those who are within that 10% uh, of the population that have ambition to be able to go out and reach that success maybe faster than than what they would have otherwise. That was so good, Corey. I'm not even going to ask you another question. Yeah, I was going to cap it there. <laughs> <laughs> Life lessons from Corey Jacobs. So Trent, to kick off rapid fire with you, this one's perfect as someone who has spent more time elk hunting in a single season than many of us do in years and doing that like day after day, week after week, etc. So th- we had a question of how do you, and this wasn't directed to you, but it's perfect for you. Sure. How do you stay motivated during a long season, long days, and long hikes? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, when I went in and landed the free 1.0, I did 53 days straight of sleeping on the ground and uh, in five different states. And yeah, motivation is definitely key. I think it's a mindset that you have to get yourself into way before the hunt gets there. And I talked to actually on that hunt, I talked to Trevor and Cody and Steve, and we all sat down. And that was their biggest concern is that I was going to get burned out, that I was just going to just kind of throw it to the wayside and be like, I'm over this, I'm done. And, and so I knew going into that hunt, I knew that I was like, okay, I have to stay on top of my game. I have to keep the drive going. And, um, and to it and family, I have one of those Delorms and I'd talk to her every single night, just through text. They're a pretty awesome little device. And she was definitely, because she knew that was an issue too, going to be. And, um, Anyway, so it was it was definitely the the family and friends just pushing me the whole time and just saying you've got this. You only have uh, twenty days left, or you only have <laughs> thirty days left, or Is whatever. That all? <laughs> yeah, that's all. Yeah. So it was definitely definitely that, and it goes. It, it it's a mindset, and it's also a, a team a team teamwork thing too. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, if you had to pick one week a year to hunt elk every year for the rest of your life, what week would you pick? I'd pick the 11th through the 22nd. All right. Why then? I, I just, I don't know. It just seems like, and, and in the, like the last few years, um, that first of, of September has been great. That first week of September has been great. Um, but if I had to go all around the board, if I had to like, like, the Roosevelt hunting, uh, Rocky hunting, different states that I've hunted, I would, I, I just would land on that those dates. It just seems like a roundabout, pretty good date wise um, to hit the peak of the rut on certain occasions. You know, depends on where you're at. So yeah. that's that's what I'd pick. Cool. So you guys bounce around a lot. You guys head to new areas you've never been to. Sometimes you pull up to a spot that you picked on a map, and there's other rigs there, and who else? You know. Who was in there? Um, we had questions specifically on that asking how much hunting pressure is too much? When do you decide to move spots because of seeing other hunters? Or if you stay in an area where there's other hunting activity, how do you adapt because of that? 
Great question. Yeah, we have dealt with that a little bit in the in the last near future. It's uh, uh yeah, uh, Colorado last year was there was people everywhere, everywhere. We'd run into numerous people every day. But on the flip side of that, it was really cool getting to meet people and and talk to people. But we also had opportunities. Uh, you know, everybody that was on that hunt had an opportunity. So don't hunt the people, hunt the elk. Is what I would say, and what I mean by that is still do your still do your thing, still run run the playbook, if you will. Um, hunt the elk. You know the people are going to determine what they're going to do. Uh, a lot of them are not going to get too far off the road. Some of them are going to get way off the road, way further than way, way further than I am. You know, so it's it's one of those things where hunt the elk and and not worry about the people. Have we had people screw us up before? Yeah, I mean there has been a few different times. Um, but at the same time, as the elk are still there. They're still going to do their bugling thing. You still have to be, you know, on top of your game as far as that goes. So hunt the people and or hunt the elk and not the people. <laughs> or if they get really bad, then hunt people. <laughs> Depends how many people are there. Fit, That's right. Then those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, an interesting question for you, Trent, because you're not like the gear nerd, which I appreciate about you. But what is a critical piece of gear that gets overlooked for backcountry hunting? Um, overlooked. I don't know about overlooked. My critical pieces of gear are my sleeping, what I'm going to sleep in, uh, whether it be quilt, whether it be sleeping bag, whether all this stuff, it's just, and, um, if you're not comfortable out in the woods, you're not going to hunt as hard by any means. So the three things that you need is right off the bat, your boots. If your feet are shot, you're not going to hunt hard. You're going to actually look for, look for the truck. So you definitely need that. Um, and like I mentioned, the sleeping bag and then clothing, staying warm, staying, you know, uh, comfortable in your clothes, not chafing. I know it's, it's not talked about a lot, but, <laughs> but it's real. <laughs> it's a real thing. It's a real thing, man. So, yeah. you know, so a lot of that stuff. And, and those are the three things I would say that, I mean, you can do with any pack out there. I know I'm talking to the Exo Mountain Gear Pack <laughs> Company, but I mean, you can get by with any knife. You can get by with any bow and arrow. You can get by with a lot of that kind of stuff. But if you're not comfortable, if you're if you're not if you're miserable out there, you're definitely going to shorten your longevity of your trip up. Yeah, got it. What has changed in recent years that affects how you hunt now? Oh man, I would say. Uh, with permit systems and stuff just where i live it would be it would be paying to play it would be i mean there's a lot of things back in the day that we could mountain bike in on and if you've watched some of our um some of our older stuff we hunted totally different than we do now and a lot of people are saying well why don't why don't you get back into that and the answer to that is we don't have any place that we can anymore you know so it's uh uh, it's access, I think, um, is a, is a big thing is getting shut down or paying to have access. And, and either way, I don't, I don't, I don't just throw anybody that wants to go and pay, you know, I've done it. I have done it to hunt some of the ground that I hunted for years growing up. It's just now I had to pay some 300 bucks to go do it. So that would be the, the most recent issues as far as that goes, it would be, would be the one for me probably. For you guys, do you, is everything running bugle or do you guys ever do kind of any blind setup, blind calling sequences, like a mix of cow calls, that type of thing? Not very often. No, we're pretty much a run and gun team. We, um, we don't ever sit water holes. We don't ever, we don't ever, you know, 
we've never never done that we've never used that that kind of a a tactic to hunt elk so now we're pretty much run and gun uh we will slow down a little bit of we will you know we will and we'll do like more cow calling and try a little different tactics um but mostly i would say uh, of our calling repertoire it's uh fast and loud pretty much <laughs> you've hunted you've yeah, hunted yeah, with yeah. us <laughs> it's, it's the death metal of elk hunting here it is it's the acid <laughs> rock of death <laughs> okay yeah um best meat care advice meat care this is a giant one this is a huge huge one before you ever go out there before you ever step foot in the woods you need to already have all that handled in in your pack you need to have good game bags number one fly blow is a real thing maggots are real and you do not want to deal with that so be prepared to take care of that animal when you first step into the woods that's number one um yeah and cool dry places uh, I think a lot of people, I think, uh, having having actually had the privilege to do this for as long as I have, you, elk will, once you get that elk off the hide, get the hide off the elk and get that elk hung up in a tree, they're actually, you, they can go through more than you think as far as temperatures, as far as, and once you get that cooling process started with the elk, it's uh, it's amazing how long that they will, that, and, it's, and it's not bad for them, you know, to hang in a cool dry place we've done it for for seven days in colorado before we ever touched the meat and hung it up and, and it was great it was one of the best bulls that we've ever had so i mean they they will they it's amazing what you can actually get away with and and hanging an elk um but you've got to get it the hide off of it right off the bat yeah when you guys hang it for an extended time you know we're going to be in here for three to five more days killing more elk I'm assuming at that point you prefer to keep everything as just quartered and bone in. Yes. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. So we won't bone like right when we get an elk and we'll pack it to wherever we're going to hang it. Usually uh, we'll try to keep bone in the whole time. It just drains so much better that way. And uh, when you get, when you debone an elk and it, it just globs up the meat and a lot of those layers, you know, the blood gets in between. You want to get all that blood as much as you can out of the elk and, and the blood will bulk, you know, will, will glop up in between the flaps that you have from deboning it and um, I do not I don't promote it at all to begin with Paul if you had to pick one week of the year to hunt elk to hunt elk every year for the rest of your life what week would you pick third week everywhere there's elk the equinox is a huge thing for for elk and when the rut really kicks in in full full gear and it's usually around 21st 22nd somewhere in there so by picking that third week you are going to be in heated bulls screaming i don't care what and, and when you say arizona or, or or nevada or things like that you're talking about draw areas you're talking about where these elk don't see that many people anyway right. but most of everything i'm referring to is over the counter this is yeah. what we do on over-the-counter hunt. So maybe guys will ask, well, maybe you do this and you run at them and you blah, blah, but you wouldn't do that where I hunt. Well, I do do it where you hunt. I hunt the same kind of elk that all these guys are hunting, these pressured elk. But I'm more creative. I'm more trying to give that elk what they want, not what I want to just give them. And so, you know, that's what I'm trying to do is to read them and then apply a strategy that usually will get them to come to me. But basically the third week, absolutely. I don't care where I go. Okay. 
You like said it. I can only pick one week, so I'm I not going to pick yeah. the last no. one for Arizona when the third one is better in 95% <laughs> of the other units. Yeah, I, I like it. <laughs> All right, so you talk a lot about sequences. You have a lot of variations on calls, meaning I'm not just putting a bugle out there, but I'm saying this with a bugle, and that means I'm, I'm tailoring how that bugle sounds and everything else. But this is going to be a difficult question. If you could only make three sounds, like not variations of a bugle, but three specific sounds, this one of them could be raking or what have you, but only can make three sounds to hunt elk, what would they be? Definitely location bugle. That's how I find everything. Mm-hmm. And And you're saying raking is one of them? It could be if you want to choose one, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely raking. I, I don't think there's a bull I've ever called in, and I don't know how many years where I didn't rake. I mean, I oh, rake okay. everything. Oh, nice. absolutely. That's number one. I mean, yeah. this is, but I can't locate with it. It's not loud enough. Right. You know, it's not far reaching. So between between the raking and the locate bugle, it, it, it would definitely have to be cow sounds. I don't know if you want a specific sound, but I always fall on three of them. The social the regathering to come on over here when they're not answering the social and then the contact buzz because those three they they it's it's they fall into each other it's just like if you were talking to someone hey then you te- if you tell somebody hey i want you to come over here or you tell someone hey i need you to come over here now you see it, that's how they're changing the emotion of their sound so all three of those maybe i know i know they're three different sounds but they are a cow sound that to me they're extremely important when you use the right one at the right time but between the yeah the locate the raking and the cow sounds i mean man what else do you need (laughs) all right i like it perfect all right um what is an overlooked piece of your preparation for hunting um so not necessarily the most important but maybe something that's overlooked by others in terms of prepping for elk they don't call enough they're just like practice calling I, they know they don't call enough period in the woods bugle, oh, okay. they don't they don't bugle they don't call they they most people are too call shy i mean I, I i go by i go years hunting in the woods and i'm hunting like 26 27 days a year in september and i don't ever hear a bugle from person nothing and they're there the people are all over don't hear anything they don't call they make a few little cow calls and i mean they just don't call and, and and I know it's because they're they're hearing all these things in magazines and reading it on the internet that all the elk are call shy and there's wolves everywhere and that if you call they just run the other way. I mean it's everywhere on the internet and you come on and you try to say no 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 don't listen to this get out there and call and of course most if they're calling a lot of people don't know where to call from they don't know how to call uh, they're calling from these openings they're just you know they just don't know how to set up right. Or they expect too much or they get an answer and they're calling their way all the way to the bull. You know, there's all these little things that take place or they, they reach a bull at 830 in the morning and the bull's just going the other way as he's calling back. Well, they don't understand that the bull's going to his bed. You're not going to call him back from where he just came. So they don't get it a lot of times that a bull's in transition or, or, or the time of day that they reach that bull. And this is why he's still moving. You're not really pushing him anywhere. He's on his way somewhere. But once he gets there. That's where you can kill him. And that's why we killed nearly every bull we killed in their bedding area. They're there 85% of the day of daylight hours, 15% feeding, transition to bedding, 
then get up from bedding to start the racket over again about an hour before dark. I mean, yeah. 85%, they're right there. So they don't call enough. That's my my strong gut opinion. Is there other reasons? Oh, heck yeah, my goodness. But I don't think people call enough to find elk. You've been hunting a long time, Paul. What has changed in recent years that impacts how you now hunt? You know, really what it is, I have a lot of pressure on me because of of I have six elk hunts this year to be on and I would really love to hunt every single year with traditional equipment honestly I've taken several bulls with it I love shooting a longbow but I can't because I have so much elk stuff happening that it requires too much time to mm-hmm. dedicate you have to shoot every single day with 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 trap with, tra- with traditional gear not to get rusty compound you can pick it right up and out you go but because of 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 of, of wanting to help others and that's my main thing i do you know honestly i wouldn't even care if i didn't pick up a bow again as long as i can go call for everybody because i love the calling aspect when it comes to calling bulls i i you know i'm a i'm a very confident individual i really am and and what i mean by that is i feel like i'm one of the best elk callers in the world i know that's stupid to say on this but i'm going to tell you that anyway and it's because i i see everybody i see the way they do things i see the whole thing i know how many elk i generally will pull in a year and a high percentage of them and there's no doubt in my mind that i need that kind of confidence in my abilities that when i'm practicing that i know i can get it done i feel i can call every single bull in doesn't mean I do, but I know I, I have that, you know, the ability to do it as long as I'm patient and I let things develop. I know it's kind of not what you were looking for, but but no, but like still, it. it's to me, it's real important. People need to have the confidence that every time they walk out there, they, they're, they can kill a bull. And I can guarantee you that's how I am. Every time I step in the woods, I'm like, this is the day a bull's going to go down. It, it can go down. There's no doubt about it because I won't throw the towel in so easy. You know, I mean, I really push hard and get creative out there to make things happen. Got it. Yeah. Um, Any strategies or advice for somebody who might just have a cow only tag? How do you hunt cows specifically? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, it's all due to terrain. But if you're hunting a lot of open country, you know, you're going to glass them up. If you're if, if you're hunting a lot of the timber, it seems like the very first week of September. My gosh, you can't believe how many cows come into the calls. And and, and and a lot of them don't they're not with a bull yet, but by going to the regathering sound and the contact buzz simultaneously using those things over and over, you can't believe how it just sucks cows right in. I mean, it just brings them right to you. Get in the areas where they're living, where their trails are going around. If you got an idea of where they're, you know, if, if I wanted to kill a cow, here would be my number one strategy. Number one is I'm going to find where elk are feeding. And that ain't very hard to do. I'm even if, even when there's a bull with them, because all I'm going to do is call uh, like an hour before daylight. I'm going to move, drive and drive and drive the dirt road. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drive until and call, call, call every mile until I finally hit them. They're in their feeding area. No question in my mind. Remember, I'm only after a cow, but they're right there in their feeding area. So I don't have to mess around with them right there if I don't want to. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back up there as soon as it's around nine o'clock and I know they're completely gone. And I am going to now go find the trail they left on. I'm going to go find right where they're feeding because it's going to be pretty obvious. And I'm going to find the trail they're using going in that area and coming out because they're using it habitually. And once I find the the well-used trail, I'm going to go sit that trail. 
That's all I'm going to do. And those cows are going to come right back by. I'm not going to run over there and chase them all over the woods and calling to them and then have them lose out on their routine and maybe not want to show up. So I'm going to leave them be. I know darn well they're going to come right back in there that evening, and I'm just going to sit right there. Do I want to call? Oh, I could. If I did, I would probably use a regathering sound because I've called so many cows in with it where you're lengthening down. It would be more of a... I hit that thing about 10 or 12 times when I know they're not sitting right there, and you can't believe how that brings them over. It just sucks them right through there. And and it, it's called a regathering. It, they, you're asking them to come this direction, and they're already maybe going to be there, or they're way up, and you need them to come quicker. You don't see anything. It's just a sound I'll use, and then I just sit back. I don't do anything. Or, or you could sit that trail and not make a sound and have the faith that they're either going to be there you know, that evening or get back up there before daylight. And then when they leave that feeding area, which they're already going to be in, they're going to come right back through that trail. But, I mean, it's just real simple things that if you don't disrupt them, they're going to use that same trail in and out, in and out of those areas until somebody just pushes them out. But the early part of the season, man, that's a, that's a piece of cake. Put a trail camera on there if you know the area well. Make sure they're using it, you know, at what times. I mean, I mean, a cow is not that hard to kill. It really isn't. Well, that's great, man. That's uh, we covered everything. I like it. Well, no, that no, that was a, that was a lot of fun, you know. And and hopefully, guys can take some of this to heart and understand, you know, the emotional sounds that an elk will make that can mm-hmm. change their message. You know, I just one thing I want to say. Yeah. There, <clears throat> when in, in giving seminars and stuff, and I've given a few lately, I, I throw that question out there on people where I say, "Do you think a bull would ever challenge a cow?" Will they challenge him or use a challenging sound? And, you know, it's so funny because everybody says no. But you see, they do. They use challenge bugles towards cows all the time. And you think, well, how can that be? Isn't a challenge for another bull that he's trying to warn or to intimidate? But what but what hunters don't understand is elk don't look at it like that. It's us putting the names on them. This mm-hmm. is an emotional tone that a bull is using. Say you're cow calling that bull. And he responds to you and you're like, oh man, he's right there. He's only a hundred yards away. And you keep cow calling, cow calling. He keeps answering. You cow call some more. He answers. The next thing you know, he starts getting frustrated and he's ramping up his bugle, telling you, get over there now. Come on. And you're not coming. He can get to the same tone that he would use yelling at a bull that he's yelling and used toward the cow. The same as a man could yell at a woman or he could yell at a guy. It's the same thing. And so, mm-hmm. so many times we get tied to these names. Oh, a bull would only use a challenge bugle. Well, bulls don't see it as that. It's an emotional sound or tone they're using for the situation that's at present with them. And, and, and that's all they're doing is, is, is tossing that out there. So once a person starts understanding that, they realize what all these other sounds are an emotional change to their message. That's all it really is. You have your location bugle, your roundup bugles, your nervous grunts, your challenges. I mean, you throw a lip ball in there. What does a lip ball mean? Does it always mean it's attracting a cow talking to him? No. It's an emotional tone when something's not taking place or they need immediate action. A lot of times the bull will throw the lip ball in. You see, but he doesn't do it all the time. It's what he's feeling. And that's how he, he he's, he's exhibiting that sound. So... That's what we as hunters have to understand, and that's when we know when to use a sound against him or that, or that tone of voice. 
And it's interesting, but once you start getting a feel for it, you'll see, man, your call-ins will triple. They they really do make a difference. Yeah. No, that's a great point, Paul, because it's not about knowing the quote-unquote right name or the right call to do. As you said, it's much more like instinctive of I need to yep. provide this emotion, you know, for this encounter. Exactly. It's just like talking to somebody, you know, you may start normal and the next thing you know, you've raised your voice a little bit and a little more. And next thing you know, you're yelling. Now you're screaming, you see, but you, but you saw that you saw how it took place, how it elevated. And this is what happens to elk a lot. But everybody watches TV and they think every sound a bull makes is just off the chart, challenging <laughs> everything. And that's, this is not true. I want to get him to that state, especially on the slow play. I will get him to that state. I will finally arouse them so much and antagonize them and, and actually upset them because they want that cow, that hot mm-hmm. cow, that they finally elevate their, their, their bugle top shelf. I mean, they are totally on full tilt when they were doing nothing. You couldn't get them to make one single sound 15 minutes previous to that. And now you have them so involved in it. You see, and that's what you're doing. I've aroused his interest to, to breed. I've aroused you know, his, t- his testosterone. I've ticked him off at the same time. I mean, everything happens fast. And elk do not have the capacity to reason. They can only react. And so this is what you're doing. You're getting him to react to a situation. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed Elk Week. We hope that this series is going to help you fill a tag in the coming days, weeks, or months. If you do, be sure to let us know how it goes. Send us an email to podcast at exomongear.com. We would love to hear some stories and see some photos from your hunts. In terms of all of our guests, we can't thank them enough for taking the time to join us on this one. And we just want to encourage you guys to check out the great resources that they have. So for Dan Staten with Elk Shape, be sure to go to elkshape.com. Dan has a lot of great content, training programs. He puts on elk hunting camps that you can go attend and learn more about in real person, in real time for elk hunting. Great stuff there. Corey Jacobson with elk101.com, including the University of Elk Hunting online course, which is truly the most comprehensive single resource out there to learn about elk hunting, especially if you're new. But even if you are advanced, the University of Elk Hunting course covers everything from A to Z, planning a hunt, picking a unit, where to go, how to do it, how to call. Everything you need to know is pretty much in there. Go check that out. If you do sign up for that University of Elk Hunting online course, you can use the code XO20, EXO20, XO20, and you'll save $20 on that course. Trent from Born and Raised Outdoors, as you guys are probably aware, they have some amazing content. You can go to bornandraisedoutdoors.com or specifically go to their YouTube channel. They're always putting out not only good hunting films, but also just information that's valuable. They just did a series recently on broadhead testing and looked at accuracy and penetration and had videos of a ton of different heads and the results and how they perform. So there's always great stuff coming from those guys. And Paul, the Elk Nut Medell, you can go to Elk Nut Outdoors, particularly go to your app store on your phone and look for the Elk Nut app. It's a great tool. Not only will you hear Paul call and explain his calling, you can practice side by side. You can record your calls, compare it against Paul's calls. You can compare it against real elk vocalizations that they have in there from the field. So much in there. So be sure to go check out that app as well. As always, guys, you can find all of our episodes at exomountaincare.com forward slash podcast. You can search Hunt Backcountry in Spotify or iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. We should be there. Again, if you have comments, feedback, anything for us directly, just shoot us an email, podcast at exomongear.com. 